0: If you could remain standing, we're going to read God's word together today. We're continuing our series in the book of John, in the gospel of John. And a couple weeks ago, we heard in John chapter 3 how Jesus pursued a Pharisee, the the top religious leader in Israel. And now we see in chapter 4 how Jesus pursues a despised Samaritan woman through the story of the woman at the well. And so I'm going to, it's a long passage, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing right now, I'm going to just read the first six verses, and then we'll read the rest as we go through the message. So John chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, hear the word of the Lord to us this morning. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Well, you can sit down. This is the word of the Lord for us. Let's pray together as we seek to understand God's word. Father, we are so grateful for the riches that are contained in your word. We're grateful that you speak to us by this living word. And we ask today that we would understand better your heart for us and for the lost. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever had a chance encounter with someone, only to realize later it wasn't such a chance encounter. It wasn't such a coincidence after all. This happened to me about 12 years ago. I was living in Arizona with my family, and I worked for a seminary uh, recruiting theological students. That was my job. And so I was here in the Chicago land area at Moody Bible Institute recruiting students from Moody to go to this school. And I had what seemed to be just a chance encounter. I, I talked to a fellow recruiter before the students came. And as we were talking, he told me, You know, you would be perfect for this pastoral training program at my home church. And I said, Well, where's your home church? And he told me it was in the western suburbs of Chicago. I said, well, I I grew up in the western suburbs of Chicago. That's really interesting. And the long and the short of it is, through this one chance encounter, the Lord sent us here. And I might not be standing here today. I may not be in pastoral ministry if it weren't for that chance encounter. And in God's providence, there are really no chance encounters there are, there, there's really no coincidences, because we believe in a God who is sovereign, who is working all things according to His purpose. And in today's passage, we see another seemingly chance encounter. Jesus is beside the well. He's thirsty, and he comes in contact with this Samaritan woman. But what we'll see that is this is not a chance encounter at all. This is not a coincidence. But through this story, we see the very heart of God for us and for all of those who are maybe unlikely candidates of his grace. And through this story, this main purpose of the, the, the whole message comes into focus. And it's this, no one is beyond the reach of Jesus. No one is beyond the reach of Jesus. Now, to give you some context of what's going on in the story, you'll remember Jesus was ministering in southern Israel, in Judea. And the Pharisees had learned about his ministry. Perhaps there were some messianic expectations that were bubbling up, and Jesus did not want to identify himself with what the people thought the Messiah was. And so he was heading up to his hometown and to Galilee. But if you know the geography of Israel, you've got Judea down here, and you've got Galilee up here. And right in between, you have this area of land called Samaria. Now, Samaria had a long and complicated history with Israel. You can read about its origins in 2 Kings chapter 17. There we learn that the people of Israel were exiled. They were sent away. And the king of Assyria, he sent people back to this land, the cities of Samaria, people from Babylon and other foreign cities to inhabit the land. And at first they weren't worshiping the Lord and lions came and destroyed a lot of them. You can read about it. It's a pretty fascinating story. But they pretty soon learned they've got to worship the God of Israel. And so they did, but they also worshiped gods from all these other places, these foreign deities. And so Samaria, according to the Jews, according to true Israelites, they were half-breeds. They were despised. They were not accepted. They were people that, verse 9 says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They didn't interact with one another. And so in that context, that's where this main point of our message, that no one is beyond the reach of Jesus, comes into greater focus. And as we go through the text, we'll see this principle unfolding in two major ways. First, we'll see that Jesus pursues those whom we would least expect. That's in verses 1 to 30. And then we see that Jesus invites us to join him in his rescue plan. That's in verses 31 to 42. So let's first think about how Jesus pursues those whom we would least expect You know, through the Gospels, Jesus often surprises people with who he's hanging out with. People are always alarmed. Jesus, why are you hanging out with these people? They are sinners. And this example is exactly one of those situations. And in this interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well, we can observe within this banner that he pursues those who we would least expect. We can observe five traits of Jesus, of how he pursues This Samaritan woman's soul. And in a similar way, how he pursues any unlikely candidate of his grace. The first trait that we see here is that Jesus can break through seemingly impossible barriers that prevent us from coming to him. So listen to verses 7 to 9 in the text. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples have gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, for, from me, a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, I agree here with scholar Leon Morris, who says this woman has three strikes against her right off the bat. First of all, she's a Samaritan. I've just talked about how Jews and Samaritans hated one another. That's strike number one. Strike number two is that she is a woman. At this time, pious Jewish men would rarely interact with a woman in public, especially if their husband wasn't there. Not only was she a woman, she was a Samaritan woman. And according to Jewish tradition, Samaritan women were unclean from birth. So if there was some interaction between a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman, they would become ritually unclean. That's strike number two. And strike number three is that she was a sinner. So not only was she a Samaritan, not only was she a woman, but she was a sinner. We'll learn in verse 18 that she was leading an immoral lifestyle. So here is this rabbi, this well-regarded rabbi, interacting with a sinner like But, you know, Jesus breaks through all those barriers by starting a conversation with her. He's not bound by the cultural norms that we place upon, uh, the kind of divisions that divide us. He's not bound by the expectations that we have. No barrier is too hard for Jesus to cross when he's calling people to himself, well, that leads to the second trait we observe about Jesus as he pursues the Samaritan woman's soul and any unlikely people that would receive his grace, and that's this. He focuses upon what is most essential. We see that in verse 10. He's, more, he's most concerned about the woman's soul. So look with me there. He said, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink... You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Notice how Jesus immediately turns the conversation to what's most important, to eternal realities, eternal priorities. The woman's not catching the drift, as as, uh, her response indicates in verse 11. She says, uh, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Well, Jesus, again, he's he's incredibly patient with this woman. He directs the conversation away from her present need to her deepest need. So in 13, verse 13, he said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, it's clear that the woman still doesn't understand what Jesus is offering her. She still doesn't get it. So in verse 15, she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she doesn't understand, but her interest has been piqued. She is interested in figuring out what this living water is, even if she doesn't get it. And it is so easy, is it not, to become fixated on our present problem in life, whatever that is. We think if that problem would be fixed, if God could just solve that one problem for us, all would be well. For the Samaritan woman, that meant having access to an endless supply of water. It was a burden. It was a chore for her to have it, keep coming to get this water. But Jesus was offering her something so much far better than what she thought her need was. He was offering her living water, which in the context of John's Gospel means he was offering her the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that would be given to her if she would believe in him as the savior of the world. This was living water. This would be endless joy, endless peace, endless patience, that the the well would never run dry on this living water. What he was offering her was far better than a drink of regular water. But she didn't realize the magnitude of what Jesus was offering. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis illustrates this point really well, that our, our desires are often misplaced. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, he says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, friends, when Jesus pursues us, he knows that we are far too easily pleased. So he points us to what is essential, which means that sometimes he does not satisfy what we think our most pressing need is. And that leads us to the third trait of Jesus that he exhibits as he's pursuing this Samaritan woman's soul, and it's that he knows us completely. Listen to what Jesus says starting in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus answered her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And I love this. The woman says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Yeah, you see some humor there. Well, now things are getting serious. Jesus is pointing to the very heart of the matter, or rather to the heart of this woman, including the depths of her personal life. Now, we don't know the details of her five divorces. We don't know if she was at fault. We don't know what the circumstances were. But we do know that almost certainly there is a mountain of shame and guilt that were associated with those relationships, And we do know that she was currently living in sexual immorality with this certain man. And not many of us would, like the Samaritan woman, like our most hidden and secret sins or the biggest shame in our life to be brought out into the open and kind of spoken out loud. I wonder today if there is someone here who is thinking, you can hide yourself. You can hide some sin from your friends and family, but even more than that, that you can hide a sin from the living God. Here Jesus shows us that he knows us completely. He knows everything about us, but we also see his heart. Notice how Jesus addresses the woman. He doesn't shame her. He doesn't Tell her, why are you doing that? He, he just states the facts. Friends, Jesus knows what is in you. He knows you completely. There's no fooling him. And as he pursues you and as he pursues your soul, he will expose your shame. He will expose your sin, even your hidden sin, so that it can be lovingly dealt with by him. Well, that leads us to the fourth trait that Jesus exhibits as he pursues this Samaritan woman's soul and as he pursues unlikely recipients of his grace, and it's this. Jesus gets to define true worship. You know, there's many people today that think that they get to define what to worship and how to worship. But here... Uh, we see that worship is not subjective. Worship is not based on our preferences. Worship is not based on our truth, whatever that means. Here Jesus refutes that claim. He says that how we worship matters to God. It matters a great deal. That he's seeking a specific type of worshiper. So let's listen to this interchange about what the woman says about worship and what Jesus says in response, starting in verse 20. This is the woman speaking. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where our fathers ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Well, what is happening here? At that time, Samaritans believed that the place to worship God was Mount Gerizim, which is right there in Samaria. That's because they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. It's called the Samaritan Pentateuch, and they also had some other mixed-in, odd beliefs with that. But they believed the place to worship God was Mount Gerizim, the place where God dwelt uh, early on in Israel's history. It's a place where there was uh, blessings and cursings, if you remember back in the book of Deuteronomy. But the Jews, they believed that the place to worship God was in Jerusalem, in the temple. That was the place where God dwelt. But Jesus sets the record straight here. First, he says that salvation is from the Jews. We, we know what we're worshiping. What he means is, is that God has chosen to reveal himself through the Jewish people, through the law and the prophets and And the Messiah would come from the Jewish people. Salvation is from the Jews. But he also says this kind of thinking about where you worship is wrong thinking. He says an hour is coming when where you worship won't matter. And then he says an hour is coming and is now here. And when we hear the word hour in the book of John, our uh, our ears should kind of be tuned to the fact that John uses the word hour very specifically. And hour in the book of John always refers to the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, a new day is here. He is saying, I am here, essentially. And so where you worship doesn't matter. Remember back when we talked about in chapter two where where Jesus said, I am the true temple, he he says that worship is, is gonna be through me. And so he says that the Father is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? In spirit, meaning from the heart, not in a place, but in the core of who you are being led by the very Spirit of God, those who have been born again by the Spirit of God. And in truth, people who have followed the one who is the truth, that we'll learn later in John, Jesus Christ himself. In truth, as God has revealed himself through Jesus in his holy word. So what he is saying is God is spirit, God is not confined to Mount Gerizim. He is not confined to Jerusalem. God is spirit. He he doesn't have a body. He cannot be contained. He is everywhere. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, must worship him through the person of Jesus Christ in the core of who they are, being born again by the spirit according to the truth of God's word. So the question is, do you want to uh, you know how to worship God? Do you want to be a true worshiper? If so, then get to know Jesus. Believe in Jesus and through his word so that you can worship him in spirit and in truth. It leads to the fifth and final trait that Jesus exhibits as he pursues the Samaritan woman. It's that Jesus reveals himself to be the Savior. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I'll say it again. Many people today, when they talk about Jesus, they'll say, you know, Jesus never really claimed to be God. He was a great teacher. He did a lot of great things. He never claimed to be God. Well, Well, friends, that's flat out wrong, and we'll see that right here in the text, one example of that. Verse 25, listen to verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I love this part. Very... It's not very often in the Gospels where Jesus is this upfront with who he is. Because with the religious leaders, they thought the Messiah was, they had different ex- expectations of what the Messiah was. This Samaritan woman didn't have probably those same expectations. I love that the woman is trying to push off the conversation. You know, Jesus just said, you know, it's not about Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim, it's, it's about worshiping in spirit and truth. She's like, well, you know, when, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us everything and then Jesus just drops the bomb there. He says, "Well, guess what? That's me." And and in literally in the original language, he says, "I am," comma, the one who is speaking to you. So what is Jesus doing here? He is saying, "Yeah, not only is he the Messiah, but he is the great I am. He is Yahweh himself in the flesh." Jesus is the Savior. So, friends, when Jesus pursues you, he will show you that he is God, that he is the Messiah. He is the only one worthy of your worship. Well, now we get to the end of this portion of the narrative, and it starts in verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said to him, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into a town and said to the people, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. You notice what happened there? The woman left her water jar and she went to tell everybody that she had found the source of living water. She had seen Jesus' point. We see her transforming over this conversation. At first, she's very skeptical of this rabbi from Israel. But by the end, she realized this is who we are seeking. She left her water jar, and she went and told everyone about it. Well, why do we love this story? about Jesus pursuing the Samaritan woman. Why is it so captivating to us? I think it's because deep down, we all know that we are just like the Samaritan woman. We are God's enemies. Because of our sin, there's a separation between us and him. But Jesus still pursues us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The story reminds us of the very heart of Jesus. So if you are here today and you think that you are beyond the reach of Jesus, think again. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter what you are currently doing. No one is beyond the reach of Jesus. So if you've never trusted in him, today could be the day that you learn that firsthand by just putting your faith and hope in him, the one who died for you. But some of you are kind of pursuing other things, and maybe God is just calling you back to him today. You're not beyond his reach. His arms are open to you, and he's pursuing you. Well, that leads us to the second main way that Jesus shows us that no one is beyond his reach, and that's by him inviting us to join him in his rescue plan. I suspect we all know that defeating feeling when we wanna be part of something significant, but then we're not given any real responsibility. I see this happening with my kids when they want to mow the lawn. And so when they're really little, it's amazing. Uh, normally two, three, four years old. The kids love, we have these little plastic lawn mowers, and we give it to them and they can go behind whoever's mowing the lawn and they feel like they're contributing, like this is part of the deal. But as kids get older, they realize this is doing nothing. And why am I doing this? And they give it up all together. Well, when Jesus rescues our soul, he doesn't give us a plastic lawnmower and say, hey, go, go do something over there. Instead, he gives us real responsibility in his mission. He invites us to share in his rescue plan for others, and nothing could be more exciting, nothing could be more captivating than being part of his work in this world. And so in this section of the story, we first see Jesus' heart for the lost, and then we see how he involves us In that plan to rescue people. You know, as disciples don't get Jesus at first, well, often they don't get Jesus. But like the woman at the well, they're thinking about the basic needs of Jesus. They're thinking, like, how do we feed and get water for our rabbi? While Jesus is focused on eternal priorities. So listen to verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Here we see in a beautiful way, the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was hungry. We're told he was tired. He is thirsty. Jesus was fully a man, but we also see here that he was divine, that he was fully God because nothing so fueled him like seeking and saving the lost. That's why he came to this earth. And so the, in these next verses, he carries on the metaphor of food and then he talks about the spiritual harvest that's right in front of the disciples' eyes. So listen to verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work do you not say there are yet 4 months then comes the harvest look i tell you lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together for here the saying holds true one sows and another reaps i sent you to reap that which for you for which you did not labor others have labored and you have entered Into their labor. Well, as Jesus is having this instruction to his disciples, there's a very good chance that just in the distance, a large group of people were coming from the town of Sychar right towards them. Jesus is saying, like, literally, look up. Look, there's a harvest that's coming. I'm coming to save these Samaritans. It's right in front of your eyes. And in a similar way, we can be like the disciples. We can miss that the harvest is right in front of us. That God is working all around us and we don't see it. We can be praying for a harvest. We can be planning for it. We can be wondering how to do it. How do we reach people? But we fail to see what God is doing right around us. So, friends, when Jesus says, lift up your eyes, the fields are ripe for harvest, those words aren't just for his disciples. Those words are for us. Elsewhere in the Gospels, he says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So, I wonder do you believe Jesus' words? Do you believe that the fields are ripe for harvest? Or are you making some kind of excuse in your mind that, well, I've got to learn more before I can be part of the harvest. I'm too busy to look up and see the harvest. You don't know how busy my life is. I think other people are called to the harvest. Other people are gifted in harvesting, not me. Well, don't be deceived into thinking that you need to wait for the right time. The right time will never come. The Samaritan woman was not waiting. She went and told everyone she knew about Jesus. And through her testimony, Jesus gives his disciple a very concrete example of this spiritual harvest that he's talking about as these people are coming to him. So look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. They heard her words and now they were coming to Jesus. Notice the power of personal testimony in this text. It's how the woman introduced so many people to Jesus. I guarantee you she did not know how to explain the doctrine of sanctification or glorification. She hardly knew anything. She just knew that this one could give her living water, and she pointed others to him. You know, I saw this uh, th- principal at work just the other week. Jared and I, Pastor Jared and I, were having breakfast at a restaurant. And our server saw that there was a Bible, this Bible, on the table. And she said, you know, I've just started reading the Bible, but I, I don't really understand it very well. I like, well, you came to the right table. You got two pastors here. <laughs> she didn't know what she was in for. But the reason she was reading the Bible was because of her cousin. Her cousin had had a dramatic change in her life. She no longer yelled at her kids. She was no longer rude to her and so many other people. And she asked her cousin, our server, she had asked her cousin, what's different about you? Her cousin said, I have met Jesus. I've met Jesus. Cousin couldn't explain everything. She said, you should read the Bible. And so that's what our server was doing. She was reading the Bible because she wanted that same change that she saw in her cousin's life. Well, the Samaritan woman's example shows us that talking about your changed life, your personal testimony of what God has done and is doing in your life can bring people to Jesus. And once you share in that way, you can introduce them to Jesus by pointing to his word so they can learn about him for themselves. That's what happens in verse 40. It says, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him, that's Jesus, to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. So there we have it. The woman encountered Jesus, and she introduced her townspeople to him. And then they came to Jesus and encountered him for themselves. So as we take away a principle from this story, we need to remember that we don't need to do all the work in bringing people to Jesus. Sometimes we can feel like, well, I got to know all the answers. I got to have all my ducks in a row. We just need to point people to Jesus. He's already working all around us. Others are sowing into people's lives without our knowing it. I learned That firsthand, just uh, the other day, when a person I'm reaching out to, trying to share Jesus with, revealed to me that he knew a bunch of Christians that I know as well. And he said, Yeah, I've known them for years. And we even did like a Bible study together some years ago. And I was thinking, What in the world? (laughs) I thought I was the only one kind of trying to reach this guy. But God had already been at work for years, all around, working on his heart. And friends, God is always at work around us in more ways than you know. So what's a practical step that you could take even this week in being involved in God's rescue plan? One way is just to incorporate how Jesus has changed your life into the course of ordinary conversation. You don't have to be like weird about it and be kind of like one of those people, but you could just You could just think about, well, how could I interject, maybe in a hard time or whatever, and say, this is how, me knowing Jesus, this is how I got through that time. And give testimony to what Jesus has done in your life. It's a very simple way that you could introduce someone to the life change that Jesus brings. Or I wonder if there's someone in your life that you could ask this week if they would like to read the Bible with you. There's a resource called One-to-One Bible Reading by David Helm, who gives you, he gives you some uh, ways to do this, or you could just pick up one of the Gospels and start reading with someone. I've heard of someone in our congregation doing just that, and it's just such an effective way for people to encounter Jesus for themselves. You don't have to have all the answers. You just say, well, let's, let's read it together. They'll encounter Jesus through his word. Well, whatever method you pursue, the point is that once we come to know Jesus, he invites us into his rescue plan to save souls. We're not on the sidelines. We're not supposed to cheer on pastors and other people and say, yeah, you go get them. You're the harvesters. No, friends, you are the harvesters. I'm here to equip you. That's my calling from God, to equip you for the work of ministry. Well, as we've gone through this story, I suspect that uh, you've been excited as you hear about God's heart for the lost. You've been challenged about how he uh, pursued this woman and challenged how you should be involved in rescuing people. But perhaps you've also felt a bit intimidated or afraid when I say you're to help with the harvest. And if that's you, remember today that this pressure is not on you. God is the one at work. God is the one who saves souls. Salvation is from Him. He just involves you to be part of that process. Remember, there are no choice, encounters, or coincidences in a world where a sovereign God reigns. He's put people in your lives for a reason. So I wonder today if you would pray that the Lord would lift up your eyes to see the spiritual harvest that's right around you, right where. You've been planted in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family. And I wonder if you would ask him to show you how you might be involved in his rescue plan. Alongside the rest of us at Hope Fellowship. We will cheer you on in that. The story today shows us there's no one beyond the reach of Jesus. What great news that is. Let's pray together. Father in heaven... We are in awe of your pursuit of us as we see your pursuit of this uh, despised Samaritan woman and how you lovingly showed her yourself. And Lord, if we think back, those of us who know you, we know that you have similarly been patiently pursuing us. And Lord, today there may be someone even now who for the first time wants to trust in you because they know that. Yes, you are the Messiah. You are the Savior of the world. And I pray that today they would come to you in faith. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you would show us how we can be involved in your plan to save souls all around us. The, the harvest is ripe. They, it's plentiful. So Holy Spirit, would you do a mighty work in us and among us as we seek to do your work in your way according to your power. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.